This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Right now, members of the actors and screenwriters unions are still on strike, walking picket lines in Hollywood. But that hasn't stopped movie studios from pushing the content they already have out to the public. And that's how you get ads like these. Oppenheimer is magnificent. The New York Times calls it staggering. Critics and audiences agree. Bottoms is a hit. It's the best-reviewed comedy of the year. It's pretty insane. And if you're trying to decide what movie to see, and sometimes that's a hard choice because ticket prices can be $20 or more, a film's biggest selling point might be this. Audiences and critics cannot believe what they're seeing with a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. The Phantom of the Open is the crowd-pleasing feel-good film that will leave you cheering. And it's certified fresh from Rotten Tomatoes. Since its launch 25 years ago, the review aggregation website Rotten Tomatoes has become the be-all, end-all for many people deciding whether or not to see a movie. If you told a friend they had to see Oppenheimer... To help convince them, maybe you mentioned it had a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was fresh. Other movies, like The Nun 2, lurking at just 47%, maybe not so much. Like any form of traditional media, I think the role of the critic has changed as the power of the critic has changed. Eric Deggins is NPR's TV critic. He got into the profession during the days when one critic could sway public opinion. And he says those days are gone. You know, at least when you're talking about sort of marquee name critics, uh, the Roger Ebers, the Gene Siskels, you know, uh, the folks who could determine the fate of a movie with a single review or at least a clutch of reviews, that isn't the case anymore. Consider this. People use Rotten Tomatoes to get a consensus on whether or not to watch a movie or TV show. But there are flaws in the system. By combining and averaging reviews, it may be devaluing the voices it brings together. From NPR, I'm Scott Detrow. It's Friday, September 15th. This message comes from NPR sponsor Organic Valley, a co-op of small organic family farms. Farmer Tyler Webb shares why caring for his land has always been a priority. I'd like to contribute to my community an array of ecosystem services beyond just milk. Building topsoil and holding on to water and supporting wildlife to build that resilience that will support you know, generations to come. Discover Organic Valley Dairy at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. 
One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLlearning.com. It's Consider This from NPR. If you're over a certain age and you love movies, then there was definitely a point when you cared a lot about Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. Now, what do these three very different films have in common? Each has played a key role in the development of two film critics. Their names? Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> I'm Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. They both started out doing movie reviews for newspapers, but it was their TV shows, sneak previews and at the movies, where the two Chicago critics developed the style of smart yet accessible discussions about film that became their trademark. I think the thing that set Siskel and Ebert apart was that they were, from the minute you saw them on TV and from the minute you heard them arguing one another, they either reminded you of yourself or they reminded you of someone you knew. I mean, they sometimes I watch them and it's kind of like watching two versions of my dad argue with one another about movies. Roger, my uh, rebuttal of this film is you're wrapping yourself in in the flag of children and I'm saying, go see The Black Stallion instead. There's a film with little dialogue. Hold on, I'm not wrapping myself in the flag of children. You're wrapping yourself in the flag of the sophisticated film critic. No, boredom. No, boredom. Brian Raftery is a journalist and podcaster based in Los Angeles. His podcast, Gene and Roger, examined their legacy, how they changed film criticism and how thumbs up or thumbs down became a part of the culture. I do think that Siskel and Ebert, by being so kind of accessible in their own ways, made you feel like you were maybe a little bit smarter about movies than you gave yourself credit for. And also, they covered everything. They were very egalitarian. They did not just cover um, sort of highbrow cinema. They covered junk, and sometimes they really championed junk. Raftery has thought a lot about what Siskel and Ebert would make of Rotten Tomatoes. I think the actual mechanics of... Rotten Tomatoes and assigning a movie a number would probably probably drive Siskel and or Ebert kind of crazy. But I do think that even they would appreciate the idea that a lot of different people are getting to chime in now about movies from different regions, from different vantage points, from different cultural backgrounds. That only, you know, I'm all for I'm all for as many movie conversations as, you know, the world and the Internet can hold at one point. To dig deeper into how Rotten Tomatoes has affected film criticism, studios, and audiences, I spoke to Lane Brown, who kicked off another one of those conversations on the internet with a recent article for Vulture entitled The Decomposition of Rotten Tomatoes. I also talked to Jamie Broadnax, the editor-in-chief of the culture site Black Girl Nerds. I started the conversation with both of them by asking Brown what he thinks is wrong in the way Rotten Tomatoes makes decisions about what's good or bad and how it presents that information. There are two main problems in, uh, in my mind for, uh, with the way the site works. And so the first one is uh, to calculate a movie's score, it uses a really simple, really reductive formula. Every review for a movie is classified as either rotten or fresh or positive or negative. And then to get a movie's overall score, the site just divides the number of positive reviews by the number of reviews. And so there's no attempt at all to distinguish between slightly positive and very positive reviews. And so a movie can get 100% based on just okay reviews. And so a mediocre movie can do really well on Rotten Tomatoes. And a movie that is great but a little challenging might lose points because it's not a total across-the-board crowd-pleaser. And so you'll find, you know, movies like Paddington 2 will have, uh, you know, a 99% Rotten Tomatoes, which is, you know, six points higher than Raging Bull, which seems uh, slightly incorrect, I would say. 
so that's the first problem. Another big problem with the site is that movies get a score after only a handful of reviews have been published, sometimes as few as five. And a movie's first score usually seems to set the tone for the way the, that movie is received. And so studios have figured out how to game this. And to get a high initial score, they'll just make sure that the critics who see their movies first are the ones most likely to give positive reviews. And so for a superhero movie, there's a whole universe of websites that, you know, now only write about superhero movies and tend to be kinder to them than, say, you know, the snobs that write for other outlets. Yeah. And uh, so you'll often see a movie debut with a really high score because the studios have corked the bat. And then that score will fall by a lot once more critics have weighed in. Just selectively having certain people review and publish those reviews at certain times. I, I'm specifically remembering this one. I forget who did it. This review of The Flash. This is the greatest superhero movie of all time that gets out there way before I saw it. I can assure you it was not. <laughs> Facts. Jamie, uh, there's a, a bunch of things I want to ask you about as a critic with this. Have you found yourself trying to navigate as a critic the world that that, that, that Lane writes about of the ways that, that the site has swayed studio behavior of when and how they're trying to introduce certain critics to movies and, 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 and get reviews published at certain times? Um, how can I answer this without getting in trouble with the studios? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, Rotten Tomatoes is become bigger than what it initially the site was built upon. And it was mostly just about film nerds giving their opinions about films and whether it was, you know, hot or not. Like it, it kind of was a riff off of what Cisco and Ebert did with thumbs up, thumbs down with fresh and rotten. And now it has become this huge sort of marketing tool for a lot of studios. So, you know, I, I understand the importance for them to want to get the reviews on the site. But that being said, uh, and, and hopefully I'm answering your question, I, I just want to make sure that, you know, what we put on for Black Girl Nerds, our reviews are always filled with integrity, are always true to what the critic actually, you know, is seeing and wants to put out there into the world about how they feel about the film regardless of our relationship with the studio. Lane, I want to get back to, to something you, you mentioned and, and, and was a big part of your piece, and that's, and that's the ways that studios are now trying to time premieres to try and you know, game, the, game the system here. Uh, and, and one example that you had of this actually working out really poorly was the decision of Disney to premiere the latest Indiana Jones sequel at, at Cannes, which... You could see the big fancy reception, and 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 you can you could see why they did that on one hand, but then you have a whole bunch of highbrow critics come out and say, "Yeah, this movie stunk," and those early reviews were very bad, and and they seem to hurt the movie's uh, opening first few weeks. Yeah, it, it was funny. It's a, they have this this big spectacle at the Cannes Film Festival. It's a five minute standing ovation. Harrison Ford is weeping as they present him with this, you know, uh, honorary Palme d'Or for a you know, lifetime achievement. And you know, in the olden days, that kind of spectacle might uh, have actually sort of translated into sort of warm early buzz, but not in 2023. And so now the only thing that really matters to come out of a, a film festival like this is that Rotten Tomatoes score. And so, yeah, you show it to a bunch of snobby critics at Cannes, and 
you know, it translates to a 33% Rotten Tomato score, which sort of instantly sets the tone for, uh, for that movie's reception. And they just had this low Rotten Tomato score sitting out there for a month before the movie arrives in theaters. And so a lot of people just didn't turn out uh, in theaters. And so you have this movie that cost $300 million just because it had a you know, bad word of mouth, you know, via that, that early Rotten Tomato score. Jamie, I wanted to broaden this out to you. I think one reason why why this uh, Lane's article jumped out to me is that because this is this is a trend in the world of criticism, but it's a trend in so many other things right now: news, politics, many other things, and that's like the broader democratization of of the world of movie critics. Right? This is not this is not an elite handful of people swaying opinion across America anymore. It's so much more of a broad pool. When you think about that trend, do you think the, there's more good there or more bad there? Like, like, what do you make of where we are compared to 10 or 20 or 30 years ago when it comes to the world of movie criticism? I mean, I think it's a good thing. I, you know, I, I want to be careful where, you know, we criticize or we're diminishing the work of, like, small online creators, people that don't have large platforms or work for trade publications, that somehow they're not seen as worthy of being a film critic as someone who works for the New York Times or writes for The Guardian, because we as smaller bloggers and journalists really love and appreciate film just the same. And we're a part of accredited film organizations and, and guilds that we work hard to be a part of those and watch tons and tons of films throughout the year and vote on those films respectively. So I say all of that to say that it's important that the pool is wider. However, you know, I, I do have concerns and I think Lane's article touched on that there are critics out there that are willing to accept payment for uh, having their articles put on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, so I think it's probably the onus is on the platform to really vet harder who they're bringing into their pool of critics. To Jamie's point, I think it is important that Rotten Tomatoes vets a little bit more carefully than they have been. And I will tell you, one person who absolutely should not be a uh, Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter approved critic is me. And yet... Somehow, I never asked for this and didn't even realize that I was a tomato meter approved critic until about uh, three days after I published my piece. But uh, apparently I am. They added me to the site. They turned a whole bunch of blog posts that I wrote 15 years ago into reviews. They weren't actually reviews. I'm not a critic. Never claimed to be a critic. Don't want to be a critic. The world is a worse place for having my stupid opinions in it. Uh, and yet, somehow, uh, my vote is, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes is exactly the same. I have just as much voting power as Jamie or uh, any of the other critics on there. And that just seems uh, ridiculous to me. I, uh, so I, I think that, you know, they, it, it's, it's certainly better that the pool is wider. There is more great criticism happening now than there has ever been. It's coming from all different places, but I do think Rotten Tomatoes, you know, the platform, the onus is on them, as Jamie said, to, to vet and, uh, and make sure that everybody who's on there should be on there. That was Lane Brown, a feature writer for New York Magazine and Vulture, and Jamie Broadnax, film critic and editor-in-chief at arts and culture site Black Girl Nerds. It's Consider This from NPR. I'm Scott Detrow. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. 
It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR.